0: So authentic is the most important for life in general, because you don't have to show up ever thinking about being a different person. Like being authentic allows you to, to free headspace to not have to worry about anything. But how that relates to making more money is really simple is that in your authentic state, you have an intuition that nobody else has like period. And when you are in that creative intuitive state, that is so 100% you it's like I can almost guarantee that you will find success. Now, here's the kicker: very few people reach that level of intuitive self truth.
1: Nick, Greg, uh,
0: uh. we got the Greg's hair. In the house.
1: Greg's hair right now is, is someone. You have to watch this episode on YouTube simply to just observe and admire Greg's hair for the entirety of this thing.
0: It's it's basically like a gorgeous prancing gazelle uh, flying through the safari, um, just so graceful. That's all I have to say.
1: I mean, that was basically the description I was going with. Actually, it's very like
2: Boy Meets World '90s show vibe. Yeah, it's
1: Joey yeah. Lawrence, Joey Lawrence vibes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's got good Lawrence vibe, good Lawrence Brothers vibes. I dig that. What's going on today, guys? What's ever? What's on everyone's mind before we dive in here?
2: Well, I'm just excited to to bring Nick on the show. I've known Nick for, for many years. He's uh he always brings the energy and he's uh for those of you who don't know, he's the founder of Midday Squares, which is probably one of the more interesting D 2 C companies uh in the space right now. And they're and they're 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 loud. That's the best way to describe them. Their marketing is loud. So I'm just excited to bring Nick on and just sort of talk about um how to be loud in the D2C space.
1: And I didn't yeah. know Nick until you brought up um until you brought up having him on the show and I'm embarrassed now because then once I like went down the rabbit hole on all the stuff you've been doing Nick, I'm like blown away and super excited to dive into it, but I have to say when Nick sent his headshot for this, which will be on mm-hmm. the cover art when we drop the episode, hands down like five x as good as any other headshot that we have seen someone said you know you get the like professional headshots the kind of like blue steel magnum vibe that people try to throw at you or the little like you know the kind of cheeky smile etc nick Nick brought a totally different level of heat with his headshot so i am personally excited to uh to see what kind of heat he brings to this episode here
0: i'm fired up yo i always you gotta bring the heat you get one shot in life to make magic happen no matter what you're doing so if you don't bring the heat that's on you
1: If you're anything like me, your portfolio is a mix of the usual suspects. Stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Maybe you've even dabbled in some alternative assets, like crypto. But those investments can be incredibly unpredictable. You know what typically isn't unpredictable? Apartment buildings. Rental homes. Industrial facilities. Places we go every day to work, eat, and live. That's all private real estate. And thanks to its historical stability, as well as its reputation as a reliable income stream, these investments could be a valuable addition to your portfolio. This is where Fundrise comes in. Fundrise is changing the game when it comes to real estate investing and making this powerful asset class easily available to investors like you and me. Their easy-to-use app lets you build a real estate portfolio tailored to meet your goals. It's a great way to benefit from real estate's many perks, while adding some much needed diversification to your portfolio. So join over 250,000 other investors building a better portfolio with private real estate. Signing up is easy. Just head over to fundrise.com/room. Again, that's f u n d r i s e.com/room to get started today. Today's episode is brought to you by Element, a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. It contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio, 1,000 milligrams sodium, 200 milligrams potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, but none of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. I absolutely love it and how it's fit into my lifestyle. Whether you're keto, low-carb, paleo, or just want to feel better and more active, Element is the drink for you. I drink it after an intense workout to replenish my electrolytes. I also drink it after a few too many whiskeys late at night. It totally helps with the hangovers. When you sweat, the primary electrolyte lost is sodium. Athletes can lose up to 7 grams per day. When sodium is not replaced, it's common to experience muscle cramps and fatigue. The same goes for after a big night out drinking. Element will fit into your lifestyle no matter who you are. Right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any order. That's 8 single serving packets free with any Element order. It's a great way to try all 8 flavors or share Element with a salty friend. Get yours at drinkelement.com/happens. This deal is only available through my link. You must go to slash happens to take advantage of this special offer. Try Element, you won't regret it. Oh well, I think that's a good jumping-off point. I like that. It's a it's our first framework for the day. Greg is got to bring the heat. It's the got to bring the heat framework. No matter what you're doing, you got to go hard at it. I, and I actually look. I mean, broadly speaking, I completely agree with that too. Right? Like, you uh, you know, you want, you have a finite amount of energy. And so pick and choose the things that you really care about, that you want to be working on. And when you're going to work on them, work really freaking hard at those things and go dive in on them with a lot of that energy. So I love it, man. It's a good jumping off point.
0: I think, honestly, man, I've been great. Like Greg alluded to, like we've been, we've known each other. I like to think of it if if it was in a music scene, right? Like let's say we're talking about a city's music scene, but we we're talking about entrepreneurship, but think about it through that framework, right? Where a lot of musicians in a scene will get together and, and be amongst each other and see each other as they're trying to do their thing. Uh, Greg and I, since like 16 years old, uh, have been hustling entrepreneurship. I'm 33. So just, I, I, Greg, I don't even know how old you are. I think you're 33 too, probably. Yep. I run the same same age. So uh, we've, we've come up together in the same city. We were under... Uh, one of the same grandmasters, Rory Olson. I always love uh shouting him out. Come from Montreal. And just Get, wait, just like- pa-
1: pause on that. R- under the same grandmaster, Rory Rory Olson, is that the name?
0: Yep. What does R- that mean? R- R-
1: what is a grandmaster?
0: I I mean, I'll give you my uh take on it. I think you know Greg could take you another uh can give you another take on it. Uh Rory's just a really predominant entrepreneur out of Montreal. Um has done over three nine figure exits over three huh. uh, took a cut co- and, and and was the founder of paysafe which I think is today still the largest third largest e wallet in the world if I'm not mistaken um, I mean this guy negotiated we were just it's funny Greg he, he says what's up we're out for dinner two weeks ago I know you guys speak a bunch too but he was talking about he negotiated with you um, why am I blanking out on this gentleman's name? He is uh, Musk's partner at um, PayPal. Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel. Yeah, he he had a pretty heavy negotiation in a restaurant we were at in Montreal with Peter Thiel in the basement. So, I mean, long story short, Rory's a G. Um, after my dad died, when I was uh, my dad died when I was ten, he kind of took me under his wing from like eleven to nineteen, um, and just really gave me the ins and outs of the game. I learned all my M&A, finance, deal-making stuff through him. And so I call him a grandmaster because that, that's what he was for my life. And I know uh, Greg had a really intimate uh, time with him too. So it's just we we both came from the same grandmaster. That's what I like to call it.
2: Yeah, I think uh, – so sim- you know, similar experience that I had as a teenager. I met him, and he also took me under his wing and sort of showed me the ropes. Um, so – but, you know, it was – it was also a different time back then. Like back then, like there wasn't podcasts like this that the ropes were being shown, you know? So having someone like that, I mean, is is still today such an advantage, but was back then like 10 times or a hundred times even more uh, because, you know, startups back then was completely demystified. So having mm-hmm. like someone like that, who's the top of his game, just sort of show you the ABCs was, was super valuable.
1: Yeah, it's kind yeah, of I one mean- of the... It's kind of one of the benefits I was going to say too, like you guys are both from Montreal or Montreal, as you guys, as you guys say, I need to get, I need to get the accent down. Um, Being from like a non, you know, it's not San Francisco, right? Like it wasn't the tech hub of the world. And yet there was this thriving entrepreneurial community, right? Like we've had Harley on the show, amazing entrepreneur from the area. There's tons of you guys. It's like, you know, the little Montreal mafia. Um, And it's like (laughs) one of the benefits of being from one of these, Sort of off the beaten path entrepreneurial communities is it becomes tight knit as a result of it being off the beaten path, and so these people that otherwise might be inaccessible to you in a large, you know, thriving tech hub become these mentors and want to see that community, you know, growing and thriving. And I'm sure you guys are now doing that for young up and comers from the area the same way I know Harley is.
0: Uh, I'm diehard Montreal. I mean, I speak with Greg about this all the time. Diehard Montreal. I mean, one of the main reasons why we. Chose to build midday squares here. We we were looking at Toronto and L.A. is just. I always I have this you know vision of of bringing the energy that Nike brought to Oregon to Montreal, um, and that's something that's that's one of the main reasons why we chose it to even do it here. But going back to what you're saying, I think a lot of people don't understand how much wealth is in Montreal. I mean, we have um, we have this ridiculous amount of concentrated wealth. From very, very long histories of very powerful families uh, in in a very small city. Like I'm telling you, it's really small. You can drive the entire perimeter of the island in one hour. Hmm. Um, and so like a lot of people don't know this, but uh the Demaray family, which is from Montreal, owns one third of Adidas, right? That means they own one third of the, Ye- the Yeezus deal. They own, you know, they own some serious stuff, and that's a Montreal family. Um, so yeah, Montreal is like low-key, like really powerful. And um, and I think to your point you're better off sometimes being a a huge fish in a small pond. And that's, that's kind of like what I've always loved doing. Uh, I know Greg went out there to San Francisco and and really chopped his teeth out there and did a hell of a job. Um, But I I never made that jump.
1: I think there's a benefit of both, right? Like the big fish, small pond. um, And then, you know, small fish in a big pond that people always present it as like an either, or, and you kind of got to pick, but like Greg's an example, I think of someone who's done it both ways and you kind of benefit from it in different ways. Like I think, Um, You know, for me personally, my own experience, like I was kind of a big fish in a small pond growing up um, playing baseball in a small town. I thought I was like, legit, it probably led (laughs) to me getting some really cool development opportunities as a result of um, being a bigger fish in a smaller pond. And then I went out to school and all of a sudden I was like a tiny fish in a massive pond and I was horseshit at the things I thought I was really good at on a grander scale. And you get the like humility, um, you know, and the the grind that you have to develop in order to actually come up the curve when you're in that environment. So I think actually, I mean, having a combination of both, it's like the... Um, Greg, I've talked to you about this. Uh, I think it's Jim Collins has this idea of the genius of and, and it's like the counterpoint to his tyranny of the or, which is these false dichotomies that we create where you're like, you have to pick one or the other. And the reality is you can do both. And so it's like the genius of and um, in these situations, which I've always loved.
0: I feel the same way about so much stuff. I just, I think people overanalyze a lot of things, like all the way down to should you fundraise? Should you not fundraise? Should totally. you bootstrap? Like it, it just doesn't fucking matter. All that matters is that you have a goal in mind and you have to get there. And to get there is going to have, you know, whether you need to raise money or not, there's going to require some type of capital requirement to get to where you need to do. And if you don't have enough money, well, then you need to fundraise. And if you don't, then. You know, continue doing what you got to do. Like, it, it doesn't need to be so complicated all the time. I think that, you know, 33 year old Nick versus 20 year old Nick, it just oversimplifies everything.
1: It's the Occam's razor, man. You got to find like the simplest answer is often the best one. Simple is beautiful. Um, I c- completely agree with you. It's actually a great place to start, too. I want, because I do want to get into this uh amazing business you've built and some of the principles and like get a little bit tactical on some of the learnings oh, yeah. so that we can share with people we've never really gone greg into d2c and like true consumer on the show and so i'm really excited to kind of get and we are uh, not
0: i want to just preface something. we are not a d2c company and so i think i think i could give you a great um a great take on what it means to be a d2c company today because we operate in the d2c space but we do not operate as a D 2 C company. Can you clarify what you mean by that? Yeah. So I think, I think there was this movement in 2000 to 2020, that was like, you had to build a business around direct to consumer. And I think in that time, a lot of people, especially depending on what channel you're in, but when it comes to consumer packaged goods, I think people miscalculated the value proposition of the supply chain partners, i.e. distributors and retailers. And so people went out and, and took those margins, because it's, it's like a, a really nice story, right? Hey, you make a product, a distributor takes anywhere from 18 to 25%, then you give it to a retailer and they take another 30 to 40%, right? That's a nice story to say, we're gonna take that away and we're gonna pass the savings on to the consumer. What I think people forgot was how trained humans are in that buying cycle and how much more money it actually costed to scale than to actually just play within the distribution channels that exist um, I'm yeah talking- I mean that's
1: like the um I think toby another uh, another canadian uh toby from from shopify he's he's Canadian right Wait, is he uh is he a German,
0: German born in Germany and moved to Canada
1: okay um he was commenting on this earlier, especially too, like when you think about the early days of that movement and the idea people had, which is actually a fair insight as you point out um that was during a time when you could literally like um you know. Put in any keyword and have pretty little competition if you were like buying ads on facebook or social or google adwords whatever it was and he was joking that like now you can rub your face into your keyboard and probably run into like a 100 people bidding against you on whatever that is like jumble of letters and so the, i mean the, the rules of the game have just fundamentally changed as a result of that
0: yeah which is always like i think i feel like i want my whole life to come back to square one i mean remember when i was 16 years old i was just like brand 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 And then I went away from that. And now I've come back to that, like the worst place I think you could be to build a a massive business is in the commodities business. And so, um, you know, brand is everything. And then you look at retail partnerships and how meaningful. I'm telling you guys, I've been in software. Retail wholesale revenue is as good as software. It is like clockwork every 28 days if you have a product that repurchases meaning that that's the good sign right if people are coming back mm. into their grocery habits or any of those like it's it's like clockwork i've never seen that so um, that's what i mean by I, I really d2c is just a component of of what we are but we are absolutely not a d2c business
2: so we God's- are a
0: manufacturing business that that runs a brand
2: hmm. So in the, like, CPG space, like, who do you, like, what other brands are you seeing that are doing a really good job? And what are, you know, how are you incorporating some of their stuff into Midday Squares, if any? Because, you know, sometimes I look at what you all are are doing and I'm kind of like, you're just doing your own thing. It feels like you're doing, like, a unique thing.
0: Yeah, but it's not even that unique, Greg. It's fully stolen from the music industry. That's what I love. I love talking about this all the time. Is like, it is, um, okay. So let me let me really bring it down. What was the initial strategy? Midday Squares. Okay, if you really, so yes, we're a manufacturer. Uh, yes, we're a CPG product. But to really understand what we're doing from a marketing perspective is we're a media company and our Patreon is our chocolate. That is like the best huh. way to describe what is happening. And so- um, my, my partner, Jake really brought this idea to us is let, he distilled the last 10 years of brand and like hardcore brand, like stuff that really is moving the needle. And I'll give you, I'll give you some examples of like, like, I think, uh, Figs is doing a great job of just like being a D2C company. You know, I, I think everybody can find their own playbook. And just but to clarify
2: we're... Figs, for those you don't know, at, uh, uniforms basically for healthcare workers
0: what yeah they they made they, they like went public the too i mean
1: they got huge
0: lululemon vibe like a brilliant brilliant play right boring uh unattended to industry of brand it was all commodity style players but there were some big players and they just brought some some style to it and and really exploded i think for us it was like if you really look at what was happening in fashion in the music industry and like the, the, the convergence of those two, it feels like every brand today that's successful has to be celebrity driven. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but it's almost like, hey, if you're a celebrity, you got to have a CPG product. Um, and that's, that's true to a certain extent, but I think that the reverse is true too. You can actually use the product, if great, to celebritize yourself. And then bring out uh, an audience that's really mm. committed to seeing your growth. You can you can do it in reverse, and so I think the Kardashians, Shark Tank, and like Elon Musk's style of communication really uh, resonated with Jake, and that's what he came. Like me and my wife are super introverted; she's the third partner. Um, and for everybody that's listening, we make we make functional chocolate bars because we didn't even touch on that part. We manufacture them as well too. Um, you but, own a
1: factory? Yeah. Did you like yeah. create, yeah. Yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. create a factory?
0: Oh, oh wow. So you that. really
1: own it. It's fully vertically integrated. Got it.
0: Yeah. You can visit anytime you're in Montreal. Like it's, it's, well, it's crazy. That experience. I'd love to even speak a little bit on, on on why I think manufacturing is so critical for the for the next steps of having success in, in brand. Um, and there was a reason why we had to pursue it, but that's a story in and of itself. So the last piece to, to, to the playbook was, hey, why is it that you know, Skims was able to come and really um, come after Sarah Blakely's uh, Spanx in a very, very fast period of time. And I think that's really because it's driven from a narrative. People like to buy into stories and then the stories uh, lead to the product. But if you have that brand narrative, sorry, if you have a a personal narrative, you can convey it into a product line. And so uh, Jake's idea was, how do we create a product line that is about being in your face and bold, kind of giving people permission to be themselves unapologetically. And that led to this brainstorm, which was like, what if we conduct ourselves like a band? Hence, Sahil, the picture you got before, right? You can, Mm -hmm. you can really orchestrate how you show up in the world. It's very, it's very possible. And, uh, musicians and, and artists have been doing that forever. And so we started conducting ourselves like a band everything the way we brand it talk about the product the way we do photo shoots like why do we do photo shoots every month just because right just because that's content to put on the gram to uh bring to life to show you in a light that seems larger than life that's what musicians do all the time um and and at the same time tell the story of entrepreneurship on the rise and that was like shark tank's numbers they were the num they were so high in the rating, Shark Tank, it didn't even make sense when I was seeing the data on that. They were like the number one show by miles. Hmm. And so it was like so obvious that people wanted to watch this. And we kind of just put together a mini reality television show on Instagram, um, started really small, started manufacturing in our condo, uh, and built that narrative and story and, and still have it today. Like we're trying to build super fans.
1: So get into the manufacturing piece of this, because my perspective or my assumption, rather, generally is like when people think about creating a CPG brand, they're like, holy shit, I don't want to touch manufacturing because and that's it's just where like, they go wrong. yeah, and it, well, and I want to get into why you think that, because I think that's an interesting contrarian insight, because like my instinct with when most people start one is like, okay, let me do this in the lightest touch way possible, I'll pay a contract manufacturer um, you know, I'll hire an agency to handle all the ads, I'll do like everything. And it just your margin just keeps coming down and down in the quality, because you're outsourcing to a contract manufacturer is just harder to control, I imagine, too. And you can't iterate as quickly on things, test, learn, etc. So I'm curious for you just like, what what was the insight there? How did you actually do it and act on creating that manufacturing
0: side? Yeah. So the, I, you know, they tell you, the more swings you have at entrepreneurship, the better you're going to get. Like that is so true. I've, I've failed at so many different things and trying to bring them forward. And I kind of have developed this like list of things not to do. And, um, one of the main things was to avoid China at all costs when creating products. So that was, uh, the reason why is like, I think early on, you need to be able to have a competitive edge when it comes to uniqueness of a product and manufacturing. If you play in that area of where things could be copied really quickly, you're going to be commoditized pretty quickly is, is, is an insight I have on that end. Um, and then two is I love massive markets, massive, massive markets that are saturated um, because those are such proof points that a pond full of fish exists right? So you have a fucking mm. pond full of ridiculous fish. And so here's where the contrarian play comes in is the problem with saturation is that by definition, saturation is an uninnovated market. And to bring true innovation to market, you you almost are never going to be able to show up to a co-manufacturer and have that happen, regardless of what you're building. So for us, we went to go see 26 different co-manufacturers. Um, and again, I, I want you to no, it wasn't like there was some grand plan to go become a manufacturer. It was in the event we could find a contract manufacturer, we wanted to use it. We absolutely wanted to use it. Problem is, is that uh, nobody wanted to make what we wanted to make. And this is where I think, especially in food, food entrepreneurs go wrong because you show up to the contract manufacturer and they will take your product and turn it into the thing that already exists on the shelf. And here's why. And I know that because we're a manufacturer now it's if I'm running a manufacturing line and I want to have as little turnover as possible, and you want to use an ingredient that I'm not storing in my warehouse. Okay. What is my incentive for you to use that ingredient? So I'm going to come to you. I'm going to say, Hey, we can do this at the minimum order quantities you want, but you can't use cocoa butter. You need to use palm kernel oil, by the way, you know how you want your chocolate to be one and a half inches. Can't be. So, we're going to have to do an enrobed chocolate. You know, you want it to be square. It's got to be circular edges. I, I mean, we could go here forever. And it's like, so you leave that thing, and now you have a product that looks like everything else in the market. And guess what? A manufacturer that knows how to make your secret sauce. Who the fuck wants to give away their secret sauce? Like, I, you know, in software, you show up. I, I, I want to take you guys through this. Okay. Just because I want you to laugh with me. This is how whack it is. I, I don't think it. It doesn't hit a lot of people until I say it this way. So imagine you show up into an investor's office and you're like, all right, guys, I got the greatest fucking idea. Everybody at the table is like, okay, we're ready for you. We're going to build the next Google. Okay. You have my ears. What are you going to do? That's different than Google. You give your pitch, yada, yada, yada. All right. Who's your CTO? Who's the team that's going to be building this? Guess what? Here it is. Asset light. We're exporting everything to an agency. The agency is going to build Google from scratch. We're just going to sit here, tell them what to do. They're going to ship us the uh, code when it's... I mean, you're going to get laughed out of the room. Your (laughs) core competency is being outsourced to another company? Like, what the fuck has happened? And I know how it's happened having been here now. It's because Pepsi and Coca-Cola fucked everything up back in the 80s. And we're like, hey, we've created these big conglomerates. We want to divest all of our asset-heavy Um, You know, manufacturing plants, we're going to go in franchise models, blah, 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 blah. We're going to create cash for shareholders. And they created this false ideology of this co-manufacturing being the holy grail to asset asset light CPG businesses. And and I just don't think that's the way to build the next Nike. You might be able to build a company in five years and flip it to Kellogg's or, um, you know, Nestle, but you ain't building the next Nike with uh, co-mans.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, so. You hit on like a hundred fascinating ideas here. So I want, I want to go run, run back through through some of these to double down on them.
0: Um, You're supposed to tell me to shut the fuck up. What I no, mean. no no no.
1: There's too too much gold in there, man. I, it's like mm-hmm. too many cool ideas. So so first off, one of the things you said at the very outset there that I thought was great was like when you see a pond and there's a whole shitload of you know fishing boats in one area. That's probably a good indication that there's a lot of fish in that area and actually that you might want to go there. And so like that's really, again, contrarian advice because usually people are like, go fish where there isn't anybody. But, but if you go that. fish where there isn't anybody, there might not be any fish there. And that's why there isn't anyone sitting there. Um, so, I, I mean, I just I love that idea. And it all kind of goes to... Um, like a common thread in what you're saying, which is like this, this whole concept of playing different games, which is something that I think about a lot. It's like, what what game do you want to be playing? And how do you figure out a different way to play it that just doesn't, doesn't look the same as the way everyone else is assuming you should. And so, you know, you talk about like manufacturing as an example. And as a use case of that, I have this friend who you might've come across actually in the consumer world. His name is Chaz Flexman. Um, yes, he started this business Chaz. called all, all day flavors um and it's like alldayflavors.com it's actually my go-to like spices for i'm not an investor i have no affiliation um for what it's worth but it's amazing like low sodium spices basically but they've done something similar which is like rather than just taking the same approach of going to like random contract manufacturers and making the product that that company knows how to make that are optimizing that contract manufacturers margins or whatever they're like line utilization which is all they care about They've taken this like data first approach to producing CPG products where they're like doing small, small test runs, focus groups, getting initial data where they have a high degree of certainty when they launch a new product that it is going to pop because they have the data and the insights from the get-go and they're able to iterate quickly, change, et cetera. And the spices are amazing and like they haven't had a flop of a product because they're taking this very different approach to doing it. Um, so I just like, that was just re- really hitting in my mind as you were talking through all of that around the manufacturer and just like doing something differently, taking a different approach to something that is very commonly done.
0: And then also, under- I think the biggest part that people forget is to look at the world through the lens of playing a game. You said that perfectly, actually, Sahil. It's like, the faster you figure out the game you're playing, the more you can find areas of exploitation. And it exists, because unlike a board game, real life is full of of conundrums, full of false positives, full of double-sided swords, like nobody's thought about everything perfectly in our societal structure and business structure. So these pockets present themselves. So for instance, there's this pocket that in CPG, if you own a manufacturing plant, the probability of you finding another competitor willing to put chips on the table under, I know cause I have some, Two really big buyers of companies at big CPG—I won't name their names—that that are in MA. they won't even look at reproducing a manufacturing line internally unless they have proof points of three hundred million dollars of year of revenue. So, like, like right there, I—we're—we're—you know—we're just trying to get to twenty this year. We know that these guys are—they—they they won't even entertain the idea of making a Midday Squares manufacturing plant. Then you go into the internal uh, smaller co-manufacturers. I know when we were going through it, people were willing to listen to how we would want to make it. And they would say to us, hey, are you, inviling, are you willing to invest $3 million in our plant? And your minimum order quantity has to be a $1 million. So there's these pockets. And that's why it's like four years now that Midday Squares has yet to see a competitor on the shelves. I think it's coming eventually, but it, it creates a ridiculous moat because- Yeah, it's a real it's moat. Inter- an internal politics of where people just don't want to fuck with investing that type of money.
1: Yeah, it's the narrative too, right? Like the narrative around manufacturing is like, oh shit, sounds like a lot of headaches and I gotta deal with this and that. And I don't understand manufacturing. I gotta hire people to deal with it. And it's like it's this whole narrative that you build in your mind.
0: But Sahil, that's when I get I get excited when that gets presented to me. That's actually my driving force in life. That's part of my algorithm for decision making is is this, something that most people say is a bad idea.
1: I saw this on your, um, so uh, first off, that's like a Keith Raboy thing that I've seen him say a lot is like his um, barometer for uh, his investing as a VC is like, do half of my VC friends laugh at the investment that I'm making? Um, I've always loved that. Like I thought it was just a good idea in terms of as, as an entrepreneur, as an investor, et cetera. But I read this when I was doing my research for this episode and one of your like, I think it was a blog post you were interviewed in. Um, where you said something like going after hard concepts is actually an easier way to succeed. Um, and I thought that was really, really well said.
0: I've had inheritedly the easiest time fundraising with this business. Uh, My enjoyment level every day has been so much happier because it's attracting talents easier when you're going after really hard things. Raising money is easier when you're going after really hard things. it just makes everything so much easier. It's like this epiphany I had. It's like from now on going forward, whether Midday Squares is successful or not, everything I will touch must be in this realm of hardness, complexity and magnitude because it has made my life 10x easier than the the the, the nickel and diming of uh, that I used to do. And when I talk about nickel yeah. and diming, I mean going after businesses that could hit, you know, only 20-30 million a year of revenue.
2: I will say the one one piece you are missing um, is I think authenticity. Because when I look at Midday Squares, I see like, you, it's, not, it's not just that you're doing hard things, you're doing hard and authentic things to you, Jake and Leslie, the, the co-founders. So for example, like, you know, I saw a video of Jake, um, who's this like highly energetic guy, basically pumping up, like, I think it was like an Air Canada or some like company doing like dancing to the YMCA. And you just see him, like, going completely, like, bonkers. And and if you know Jake, that's Jake. And yeah. if you know Leslie, that's Leslie. And if you know Nick, that's that's Nick. So I think it's a good framework um, to start thinking about is, like, do hard and do authentic.
0: Yeah, and and do – so authentic is the most important for life in general because you don't have to show up ever thinking about being a different person. Like – Being authentic allows you to to free headspace to not have to worry about anything. But how that relates to making more money is really simple, is that in your authentic state, you have an intuition that nobody else has, like period. And when you are in that creative, intuitive state that is so 100% you, it's like I can almost guarantee that you will find success. Now, here's the kicker. Very few people reach that level of intuitive self truth. And that's what I'm out there pitching, which is, you know, go deep, figure out what that thing is that makes you, you, and then triple quadruple down on that. And and that's it.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by element, a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. It contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio, 1,000 milligrams sodium, 200 milligrams potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, but none of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. I absolutely love it and how it's fit into my lifestyle. Whether you're keto, low-carb, paleo, or just want to feel better and more active, Element is the drink for you. I drink it after an intense workout to replenish my electrolytes. I also drink it after a few too many whiskeys late at night. It totally helps with the hangovers. When you sweat, the primary electrolyte lost is sodium. Athletes can lose up to 7 grams per day. When sodium is not replaced, it's common to experience muscle cramps and fatigue. The same goes for after a big night out drinking. Element will fit into your lifestyle no matter who you are. Right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any order. That's eight single-serving packets free with any Element order. It's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. Get yours at drinkelement.com slash happens. This deal is only available through my link. You must go to d-r-i-n-k-l-m-n-t slash happens to take advantage of this special offer. Try Element. You won't regret it. If you're anything like me, your portfolio is a mix of the usual suspects. Stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Maybe you've even dabbled in some alternative assets, like crypto. But those investments can be incredibly unpredictable. You know what typically isn't unpredictable? Apartment buildings, rental homes, industrial facilities, places we go every day to work, eat, and live. That's all private real estate. And thanks to its historical stability, as well as its reputation as a reliable income stream, these investments could be a valuable addition to your portfolio. This is where Fundrise comes in. Fundrise is changing the game when it comes to real estate investing and making this powerful asset class easily available to investors like you and me. Their easy-to-use app lets you build a real estate portfolio tailored to meet your goals. It's a great way to benefit from real estate's many perks, while adding some much-needed diversification to your portfolio. So join over 250,000 other investors building a better portfolio with private real estate. Signing up is easy. Just head over to fundrise.com slash room. Again, that's fundris dot com slash room to get started today. You also hit on this idea of like, kind of complexity and like, I always think of the... um I think it's Charlie Songhurst, the famous investor, has this matrix that he draws of uh, uh, like complex on one vector and boringness, like or sexiness on the other one. And he talks about the fact that you want to be building businesses that are in this, in the quadrant that is like complex and boring because complex and sexy, you know, that's like SpaceX or something. And there's so much competition when you're building complex, sexy things that everyone wants to build. And so, like, when you talk about manufacturing, I'm like, holy shit, that's boring. You know, that's like the boring stuff and it's super complicated to do. And so you're building in this rarefied air where people don't want to be building there because it's not sexy and it is complicated. And so now all of a sudden, what's your competition look like? I mean, you're building in a big space with less competition. To your point, five years, people haven't been replicating it or doing it because it sits in that in that sector.
0: Oh, man. Oh, man. That is like it's it's number one in finding pockets of um Exploit. What I will say is, Greg asked me to come up with some ideas for the show today, and I thought about it, and I have ideas, but I, 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 want to leave for sure an anecdote on this podcast, which is I've gone after things just for money, and have made money doing them, and I know in for sure with one hundred percent truth that the success lies in the thing that you want to do no matter what. And usually if you do something, for instance, there's a huge keyword spread right now on hrefs, right? For plumbers, local plumbers. There's a huge opportunity to build a monster aggregator for plumbing, the plumbing industry. It's so clear how to make money in that industry. Would I do it tomorrow? No, even if I see it because I, when the going gets tough in a business, which it ultimately always will, you want to quit. And this is the first time ever because I'm excited about what we're doing. I love chocolate. I think literally in my graduation when I was in grade six, I said um, uh, Willy Wonka and the Charlie Factory was my, my dream to, to be one day. I never want to quit. I'm addicted to it. And so you, I don't ever discount that part. And sometimes when you're doing unsexy things like for midday squares, as as unsexy it is in manufacturing is very sexy from a brand standpoint. Like people love wanting to build brands. People love what comes with that aspect. And I have, and I'm, um, and I'm, I, I could tell you, I've been chasing this since I'm 17. I've wanted to build Nike since I'm 17. And I veered away from that for many years. And now that I'm back, I realize why I'm addicted to it.
2: And why did you veer away? Is it because you were mm. chasing? The, you were chasing the money.
0: Yeah, I was chasing the money. There was there's a million easier ways to make money than to build a brand. It's it. I, there really is. I I don't care what anybody says. Like you, you know, if you if you're trying to become a millionaire, building a brand is not the fastest way to do it. If 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 anything, it's actually the least probabilistic way to do it. The truth is,
2: and, yeah. The truth is, it's. It's enormously difficult to build a brand and it's enormously difficult to build a startup. Like if you want to make a lot of money, you know, honestly, just go work at Facebook and Google and get some stock and you'll probably make a lot of money. Like people who go into startups, especially like CPG um, or even hard things like consumer social, like don't, it's just not, your, your odds are so low. Like you need to go in because like, you want to make, you know, 16-year-old Nick proud basically.
0: Yeah, it's it's like Iron Man. No, I'm I'm actually really I'm really open to sharing the why. The why is I like doing things that and I know Sahil even Greg, you both feel this way. One, I'm an ex-athlete, Greg, we've been doing this since we're younger. I like knowing that I'm doing something that a very small percentage of the world is capable of doing. That's that's what that's what that's what drives me. It's, it's my competitive force against myself. I always have. When I was playing hockey, it wasn't about what was going on around. It was like, "Hey, how far up the stats could I get myself? How good of a goalie could I become? And it's the same thing here is I love the idea that, I don't know, five, two people in a hundred years, three people in a hundred years get to make Nike. I don't know if we'll do it, but that's the dream. And that's why you know, I, if you hear me talk about this all the time is I'm always like, we're doing this for 25, 35 years. Again, everybody I meet's trying to build businesses for five years and flipping it. Do you think that we would have ever built a manufacturing plant if we had a five-year business plan? Absolutely not. You could not make <laughs> the returns work. And so again, like a, a competitive advantage, people... Think competitive advantage comes down to intelligence all the time. How much experience you have in something. Sometimes it's as simple as saying, "Hey, I'm not going to play the game that the world wants to play. I don't want to do this for just five years, thirty years. You're gonna you're gonna interact with your decision making like on a whole different level."
1: I saw a great tweet about that. Um exact point that you just made on like exp- people think that experience and intelligence is um, is like the most important thing around this um, I think it was Jack Altman you, you know Jack um, Greg he's a founder of Lattice well. I think his brother is Sam Altman the yep. one of the YC yeah, guys yeah. Um, Jack tweeted one of the most surprising things in business is the degree to which an inexperienced person with the right mindset will outperform a highly experienced person without it. Um, I thought that was so well said. I was like, the whole thing of experience is just like, I just think it's overrated.
0: So overrated. What it, what it, what it's not overrated on is, um, giving you the lay of the land. That's it. After that, get, get the fuck out of the way. Like when it comes to experienced people, they actually do more damage in their square Even like myself, I will be that person when I'm 70, going back to a 20 year old, I will be more destructive than I am positive to that person because I will have created all of these false stop and goes when Y or Z roads present itself simply because of timing, luck, my own skill sets, right? But what they are really good at is if we give the analogy of a Formula One track, they can tell you on Turn yeah. two, there's going to be a pothole. Avoid that at all. Like, they're really good at that. And then after you've dist- you've distilled that, like, get them the fuck out of the way.
1: They've gone through the, um, the idea maze. Like, they, they've kind of been through it, at least in some form, in some way, shape, or form. I do think that, like, sometimes, you know, those people have this, like, flawed map of the reality because it doesn't apply anymore. And so they're like, hey, you're going to screw this up. You know, Nick, your manufacturing is going to be broken because of this, this or this. And like that was 10 years ago and things have fundamentally changed. And there's some reason or new insight that, you know, they don't understand or fully, fully appreciate. But I agree with you. you
0: Far from it. Like I, I have I have an incredible board. Okay, and I've spoken about this, so I'm not throwing them under the bus at all. This is really just a good example of it we were going through, we just transitioned the whole business from a two square business to a one square business. We needed to make these decisions quicks costs were rising. We wanted to do a price increase. We had data from the customer that they wanted to buy one square at a time, not two squares. So we said, you know what, let's do a $1 price increase, but to offset the feeling to the customer, we're going to drop it to one square. So now instead of selling two squares at 399, we're selling one square at 249. Okay. That's the premise of it. We presented to the board saying we're rolling this thing out. And then everybody's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, wait, wait. could we do a test market first? And this, I'm just looking at everybody. I'm like, what do you think this is fucking L'Oreal test market? We are barely surviving. The water's filling up every day. We have two people in QA. We could barely scan the boxes in. We could barely manage three flavors. Now you want me to manage three flavors and two skews, which, create, which creates six different uh, skew possibilities. It's like, no. We have a gut feeling, we're rolling with it, this is where it's at. And I get in 10 years when we're a different company that we can be more calculated in our approach, but sometimes you're just too far from it and they, and you forget what it's like to be on the uh, the army lines.
2: First of all, I love that you're just like, an abs- like, absolutely not. Like I feel like a lot of, I know a lot of founders who have conversations like this with their board and it's easy to, you know, it's your board, and and ultimately you're the CEO, and you kind of work for the board. Um, it's easy to be like, all right, fine, let's go test it and sort of delay it. But you know, it was or was that hard? Was it hard to to speak to the board and basically be like, I'm sorry, we're going. This is the direction we're going.
0: No, and this is a piece that I, I think a lot of investors are going to hate me for saying on on this podcast is just. I, I, my, our board trusts us. Okay. So that's one, that's one piece I want to make sure that, that nobody gets false representation of, of, of what I'm saying, what I'm about to say, what I'm about to say is that you have to earn trust in life and how you earn trust is by delivering that being said, founders need to start taking back, not control, but conviction that we are the people that are on the front lines doing the stuff. We are the scarce ones. Money's of abundance. Mm-hmm. Investors are of abundance. Boards are of abundance. That is not to be saying that you should show up like an arrogant prick. Because I think if you called my 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 board, they would say, you know what? He's he's reasonable. He's very reasonable in the conversations. But at the end of the day, you get paid to make the convicted shots, and you have to con- you have to show up with that confidence to to lead. You're leading them through war, not them leading you through war. And that's the piece we got to flip because there's a huge, there's this huge idea of like founders are just glorified employees. And that is the furthest thing from the truth.
2: What's a really big decision that you made or you and, and, you know, your co-founders made at Midday Square is where it was a gut decision and you went with it. Um, but deep down you're like, Oh my God, I don't know if this is actually going to work because <laughs> I'm sure there's, you know, I'm sure you have some of those.
0: Could I tell you, honestly, it's happening right now. It is the one squared decision. And here's why I'm going to explain to you why it's, and I don't even have the answer yet. We're actually right now in this uh, part of the movie where the plane goes off the radar and nobody knows if it blew up or not. Um, that's kind of where we are right now. So here's why this was such a big deal. If every customer, right, we were, we were on fire in the U.S., we beat Perfect Bar in the last 24 weeks as the number one bar in the U.S., okay? So that's like, do not fuck with anything, right? <laughs> like, don't fuck with anything. Now, the board was like, guys, if we're selling two squares for every customer and we now bring it down to one square package, what's to say that every customer is going to continue to buy two squares? We might actually go cut our revenue in half. That is a factual statement. And this is where it gut got overrode it. It was, I hear you loud and clear, but if you just read the requests from the customers, they want one square so badly at a fair price. And there was no data in the world that could have made this presentation look like this was the right decision to make other than anecdotal evidence. And so our bet is that no matter how much carnage it reeks on the PL, that in the long term, we will actually end up selling more squares per customer. And we think that because now we're giving the customers what we want. And that's what we have 100% conviction on is that they want the one square. So even though it might hurt the company financially in the short term, uh, we, we bet the farm on it in the long term. And, 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 and that's where, you know, in September, if we were wrong on this, we put ourselves into a position of where we can potentially smash into a wall, um, and have to raise, uh, you know, way earlier than expected with revenues, not hitting where they need to hit potentially creating a down round scenario, if that all does come to fruition. And that's where like, that's where I love thinking about entrepreneurship like being a Formula One driver. sometimes you can't think, you just have to act and um, and what will be will be you know you live and die by the decisions you make. and so we made a really we, we made a really hard gut decision on this one. There was no data to suggest that we should have done this.
1: I love that because it's just an example of a bold decision that you just you had to make. and it, it's also the benefit of being a private company, right like a public company. The reason I think most public companies end up stalling out at some point, you know, in the long run and getting, you know, chipped away at by uh, by innovators and by, um, you know, new entrants to a market is for this reason, right? Like a public company can't make that decision. Um, because it's just like, oh, my God, we can't shoot the golden goose. Like, we can't give up revenue in order to go after the thing that might be correct in the long term because we have quarterly earnings reports and we have to read them out to investors and we told analysts what we were going to hit and we have to hit that or we have to be in the band, whatever. Um, And so, I mean, it's also, it applies to like, when you think about um, the public companies that have really thrived, like in the tech world especially, um, the ones that have the founders still leading them still make those bold decisions because they aren't just some like executor that's come in to like operate for their 10 year stewardship and then move on and retire with their $30 million pay package. They still care about it like it's their baby. And so like, you know, an Evan Spiegel at Snapchat or Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, you know, criticize them as much as you want, but they're still making decisions as though it is their baby. And it is, they care about it so much over the long term because it's so much of their legacy is tied to it.
0: Why I'm so bullish on, so uh, two other contrarian things, well actually just one on, on that end, but is we fundraise at lower valuations every single round to control the board and have uh, complete voting control. So we've taken 10, $50 million cuts from the valuation in order to have those provisions in the term sheets. This is stuff that people need to continue to do. Now, why am I so bullish on control and board? People always ask this question is like, why are you an egomaniac or no, it goes back to your answer in software, all of the top companies, I think people just got excited by software. Yes, they're great business models, but in CPG, there's not one founder led top 10 company in the publicly traded ranks. It's all like, you know, The guy who founded Hershey's was a G back in the day. That guy is dead now. And it's, you know, like what happens when a founding team in CPG goes the distance, doesn't sell the company, retains ridiculous voting control at like the super voting rights of the Zuckerbergs and is able to continue to make crazy bold decisions well bringing in a billion dollars of revenue. What does that world look like? <laughs> that's what I think we're excited about and why we fight so hard for control. I mean, fight fucking tooth and nail in the negotiations for that.
2: It's the classic uh name your price and I'll give you the terms. Something like, right? That the saying, yeah. it's not about the price that you get. Um it's about the terms that are often way more important.
0: And that's actually how we start the fundraisers. So what a trick that I've learned that I really like is we create the term sheet. And I think other founders could use this too. So you, you go out, you pay, you pay a law firm to create an outline term sheet. So you get, you get rid of all the people that are going to waste your time and you show up and you're like, here is the framework of the term sheet. You no price, just the framework of the voting control and all that. If you are willing to do this deal, you name your price, knowing these provisions, if not walk now, and you could still bring your own term sheet. I'm not saying you have to use our term sheet. This is the outline. So this way in 24 hours, you scare away all the players that don't want to play.
2: Nick, you're on this podcast right now because literally no one talks like you at all in Silicon Valley or whatever. Like not only are you saying things that no one at I know is doing, you're telling other people about it in a public saying you're not afraid to tell. And, and that's why you're here. Like I, I, that's why I love you. um, And I, I love that about you is because you're not afraid to do your own thing and just kind of, Hey, this is how other people are doing it. This is how I think is is reasonable. Let's go.
0: But cause it comes down to my, when my dad died, uh, my dad died at 10. Uh, um, my family really all mourned it separately. So we all became alone for a very long period of time, even though we were in a house together. And I think that period of time of my life has really, it really shaped me to to having first principles thinking and unique thoughts. and, And because I was just so alone for so long, even though I was amongst people, that you start to really lean in and trust yourself. When you are trying to figure out Death, it, it creates this really amazing energy in you to have to figure out life fast, quick, who you are, how you're going to react to it. And that's why, like I always say, like the best thing that ever happened to me is my dad, my dad passed away. And I don't mean that, and I wish that he passed away, is that it really just shaped everything for me because it taught me to be a unique thinker because there was nobody to mourn with. And the more I leaned into myself, the more happy I was getting. And that kind of translated into life outside of the morning, uh, part. And then I just started to realize, wow, you know, you, you, you I, this is going to sound bleak, but I don't mean it in this way. You're born alone and you die alone and mm-hmm. conduct yourself accordingly. Doesn't mean you're going to have a great journey on the planet. Um, but, but really think for yourself.
1: So in our last couple of minutes, I just have like a prompt for you kind of, I guess like pretty, pretty open-ended prompt. Like say you were dropped, um, into a, you know, new place, you have nothing on you. You got, you know, no money, um, no connections. You don't have your network, any of that stuff. Um, What would you do? How would you... Because you strike me as the type of person that would figure out a way, like, I would go check on you in 10 years and you'd somehow be successful and have figured something out and you would have made friends and done stuff. Like, what what would be your moves? Like, what would you go do if you were dropped into a new place and needed to, you know, needed to find your way?
0: I would... I would really do, do I get, do I get to bring the skill sets that I have? Or am I starting? Yeah, of luck? course. No, okay. no, no,
1: no. You get all your skill sets, all your knowledge in your brain, whatever you guys. And, and, you know, you have your baseline level of like, you, you don't need to be stealing food um, at the outset to survive.
0: Yeah. I would find baseline family businesses um, and go become the right hand person to the right person, because that is a launch pad that. Like, I mean, putting yourself secondary to someone is always the best way. How did I make my network in Montreal? It was, uh, I was at like this, like thing where I had John Biggs, who was the editor of TechCrunch, and we were just eating dinner. And I just was like a servant to him. It was not about me. And, uh, you know, two months after he hits me up, he's like, you want to host TechCrunch in Montreal? And then I made somebody else the face of it, LP Maurice, not me. I just got to put my name with it and was a steward to him. And uh he got to put his name on that. And that changed my whole life. Just that one just that one little thing, right? Is is be a steward to others and and uh it, it it's it's the hack. So I, I say it all the time, you have no idea how many people come through midday squares and piss away their opportunity to be the right-hand person to the next Nike. Like, I, I, they can't see it, right? Mm. And I'm always like, why would that person want me to have a negative opinion of them? Like, if they were smart and they were to make a bet, even if it's unlikely, but if we do succeed at our vision, it's going to be pretty big. Wouldn't you want me to have a good opinion of you? Um, and these are the things that I think about in myself. So I would I would be a steward uh, to somebody that needs to and make sure that I, I make them a boatload of cash or a boatload of notoriety or a boatload of fame and whatever the hell it is. And and my life would work out.
1: It's like the era of apprenticeship is not dead. And if you can find a way to go be someone's apprentice and hustle your ass off to do it well and to learn and be a sponge when you're around that person and go improve upon it, like that's kind of an old fashioned way of making sure that you succeed and win in the long run.
0: Oh my it's it's that I think that is the thing that will never change. You know Bezos always talks about what are the things that are never going to change? Hmm. That's one of them. Like being a steward to somebody will never change.
1: That's one of my favorite frameworks by the way. The uh you know what will stay the same framework. It's like Bezos talked about how um, you know, for anyone that doesn't know this one, like he talks about how it's really hard to predict the future. Like it's so hard, so uncertain. And so if you're trying to say like, what's going to be different in 15 years, and let me try to plan around that to position us well, it's really, really hard to do. Sometimes people do it well, but it's very difficult. Um, versus the flip side, if you invert the problem and think about what's going to be the same in 15 years, what do I know is not going to change? And let me make sure I'm building for that. And so it's like, Customers are going to want things fast and they're going to want things seamlessly and check out easily. Like that is never going to change. People always want less friction. And so how do I build around less friction?
0: It's why we chose chocolate. I mean, 142 billion traded globally. Every country knows what chocolate is. Nobody requires education for it. If I give you, a piece of chocolate in a country where we don't speak the same language, you will immediately know what I'm doing. I'm showing you gratitude. I'm giving you a little piece of good vibes. Um, these frameworks are so powerful. So now, that doesn't mean that they're going to be easy once you do them, but that the, what is not going to change is a great place to start.
1: 100%, 100%. Greg, any, um, any closing thoughts here as we, uh, as we hit the end of our time, I feel like we hit on so much interesting stuff here.
2: How much, Nick, how much are you sleeping? Like, would you say you sleep a lot, a little? And I ask because no, a, lot. You, a lot, I ask because, especially with this bit, this change from two squares to one square, it must be like in your brain right now. And uh, yeah, just curious your sleep habits and, and how you're feeling just, um you know, mentally right now.
0: Mentally, I need it always a week every so, Okay. I'm plugging the podcast Midday Squares Uncensored guys come come listen to it because it's J- J- Jake Les and I we talk about our journey and what we're going through so it's not a, it's not an interview show it's really about us how, like you get to be a fly on the wall as we just distill what we're going through um, that's why that that brought it up but right now I'm I'm a bit beat up but I went all in with my life on this and so I really don't have much of a personal life. Uh, and I mean that, Greg, like I, I haven't seen any of my friends in three years. Um, my family knows that I'm gonna be very unpresent. Les and I, who are married, this is all we do. And so the reason why I'm sleeping well is because I've, I've eliminated everything from my life except midday squares. Um, and so when I get home, it's just home, sleep, back at it. And every three months, I need one full week off to sleep. And that's how, because because it's it's so hard manufacturing. Mm-hmm. We just to give you guys a, a scope of the scale. August 2018, we had max capacity per day of sixty thousand bars, and today we produce forty six thousand bars a day, uh, fully automated, um, and we're looking to double that. Uh, that 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 I've had a teammate die on us uh, at a company retreat. I've had mold in the walls while investors were visiting. I've, I mean, it, it's just been one thing after another. There's no reason why we should still be alive. Um, and I attribute sleep to a big part of the success is that I'm sleeping really, really well, which allows me to be decently emotionally stable to deal with you know, the onsets of depression that come on while you're going through it, um, which is you know something I've struggled with my whole life. I mean, we can get into that another time, but yeah, it's, it, it's been crazy hard, but I prioritize sleep like crazy. That's like, again, 30-year-old Nick versus 20-year-old Nick, prioritize sleep.
1: I love it. You, uh, you, I feel like you opened my eyes to a bunch of new stuff here. I'm going to need to do like, uh, Greg, we're going to need to do like a debrief, um, and, uh, and takeaways and stuff as like a follow up postscript to this when we, uh, when we released the episode, cause there was so much gold in it that, um, that I feel like I'm going to need to go back and re-listen to it again to, uh, to uncover all of it. So thank you, Nick, for, uh, for taking the time to join us, man. This was awesome. Uh, where can people find you, uh, and, and your, uh, and your business?
0: Yeah. So, um, Instagram, Midday Squares, um, Nick Salto on Twitter. Uh, I love just you know dropping tidbits as I'm not not tidbits and necessarily how we're doing stuff, but just what I'm going through. So Twitter, Nick Salto, Instagram, uh, Midday Squares, TikTok, Midday Squares. I'm gonna go
1: buy some now too. Um, I'm excited to give them a shot. This is gonna be awesome.
0: Please do, please do.
1: Thanks, Nick. I will, I will let you know. Thank you so much for joining, man. This was awesome. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you have any questions that you want featured in a future episode, email us at hi at trwih.com. Leave us a review at Apple or Spotify to help us grow the reach of this podcast. Until next time, we will see you soon. Joy cause they just want you in that same old predicament. Misery
0: Love a company, think on it, pray on it. Sip a cup of tea. Never let the world break get in the borders and